Philippians chapter number one, verse number 27. We finished with this verse this morning, and I want to start with this verse this evening. The Bible says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In verse number 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. I was encouraged by our meetings this morning in, in uh, our services, both services this morning. I believe, I believe the Lord met with us, and uh, thank him for that. And I sense the, the Spirit of God in our services this morning. I like to gather around the table, and uh, it causes us to be focused. It causes us to prayerfully put away stuff and focus upon Jesus Christ. I believe that he met with us this morning. We saw this portion of Scripture in Philippians. If we were to read the entire first chapter, we find this, that Paul is in bondage. Paul is suffering. He's, he's ready to see death. Paul's body is, is hurt. He's riddled with pain. I don't know what it is. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but there's something, there's some kind of thorn in his flesh that Satan uses it to buffet Paul. And the Bible tells us that Paul had prayed th three times that God would remove that and God said this to Paul, that my strength is sufficient. God didn't see fit to remove that, that whatever it is from Paul. We do know this, that God could do it. And I believe that Paul also knew that God could. That's why he asked. When God decided not to, Paul knew that that was a decision that God made. It wasn't because God couldn't. It's because God chose not to. Just because God doesn't answer our prayers, it doesn't mean that he's not listening. It simply means that he's going to perform what he desires, even if it's not our desire. And whatever that was, it caused Paul suffering. It was something that Paul battled and he faced. And we find that Paul now is at a place in his life where he's in bondage and he's, he's in pain. And Paul is enemy number one for Satan. Could you imagine that? If Satan had one person that was high on his list, it was Paul. Satan himself tried to attack Paul, buffet him. Because Satan knew this, that Paul had a desire to serve Christ. Paul was sold out. Could you imagine just totally being sold out for Christ? I mean, it didn't matter what happened. Somebody beat you, somebody put you in prison. It didn't stop you from doing what your purpose was in life, and that's to preach Christ. You know, as Christians, as unfortunately, as Christians living today and Americanized Christians, we, we want everything to be perfect. And when everything is the way it's supposed to be, it's very easy to serve, isn't it? 
Paul's example to us, and more even importantly, Paul's example to Timothy, who he was training and who he was developing, was this. Even in difficult times, even in suffering, even when things aren't ideal, when it's not the way you have it planned, the right thing to do is to serve Christ. Nothing that was going on with Paul was a hindrance to Paul. Matter of fact, when Paul went through suffering, it was almost like he went even harder at serving Christ because he understood he understood what was happening he understood that that his calling was to preach Christ and to train men like Timothy and and Titus and and others that he brought alongside of him because he knew this that Satan was attacking him Satan wanted Paul to stop but Paul wanted the church to be strengthened and the reason why Paul wanted the church to be strengthened is because he wanted the church to be able to resist Satan. Do you realize this? Satan, Satan seeks to destroy everything that God seeks to bless. I've said that many a times over the last few weeks. I've said it as we've been studying through 1 Peter. I think I said something similar to that this morning, and tonight I say the same thing. What God seeks to bless, Satan seeks to destroy. From the beginning of time, when, when Satan was in heaven there and, and, and he saw God's majesty and he saw the, the angels worshiping God, he said, I want that. He desired it in so much so that there was a, 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 a fight, a war that took place in heaven and God won and God tossed Satan and a third of the angels out of heaven. And then God created man and in the garden, Satan and that third of that fallen angels, they saw God speak into existence. and said, let there be light and there was light and let there be this and it became and they watched God and God then created man he took the dust of the ground and he formed man in 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 everything then watched God as he bent down he breathed life into that man and Adam then began to worship God created Eve and Adam and Eve, the Bible says, would walk through the garden in the cool of the day, fellowshipping with God. In Satan, anything that God blesses, Satan seeks to destroy. That old serpent came to Eve and said, what God really wanted you, didn't want you to do, is become like him. You eat that fruit, you'll become like God. Eve grabbed that fruit and she took a bite of that fruit, gave it to Adam, he took a bite of that fruit, and then be through their disobedience, sent into this world. Everything that God seeks to bless, Satan goes into overtime to destroy. When a family like the Durham family say this, I'm going to serve God, everything that God seeks to bless, Satan seeks to destroy. When you give your talents and your gifts to the Lord, everything that God seeks to bless, Satan seeks to destroy. When you do what God has called you to do, Satan is after you. 
Any marriage where the two come together and they say this, I'm going to be faithful to you and I'm going to be faithful to you and we're going to live our lives pleasing the Lord. Every time that happens, Satan seeks to destroy it. Every Sunday school teacher this, this morning that taught, as you studied all week long, Satan sought to destroy you. The last thing he wants to do is for you to teach that class. Junior church workers, nursery workers. Do you, ever, do you ever realize how much frustration and how many problems come on a Saturday night? I mean, it just seems like that's the, Satan's going to attack. Everything God blesses, Satan seeks to destroy. There's a sense of emergency here with Paul. He possesses this when it comes to getting the gospel out. As I read through Philippians 1 and I see Paul's desire, Paul says, I, I want to live my life in such a way where God is magnified. When I sense that, I, I appreciate that in Paul, the example he gives. Because I believe this, every one of us could be more serious about serving God this evening. Every one of us could be more sober-minded when it comes to preaching the gospel. Every one of us could take a deeper commitment in serving God, but understanding this, anything that God blesses, Satan seeks to destroy. Paul is preaching, and as the, to the church, Paul writes here in Philippians chapter 1, he writes to strengthen them and strongly encourage them to what? Be in unity. He says in verse number 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to give you these few things here this evening. If you'll write these things down, and maybe this week sometime do a study through this, and, uh, but I want to give you some outline, an outline here this evening. In verse number 27, I want you to see, first of all, I want you to write this down and see this. Our lifestyle reveals who we are. That word conversation, you know what that word conversation means? Lifestyle. It means more than just what you say. It means how you live. It means not only what you say, but it, it means your actions. It means your decisions. And so Paul is saying this, and let your lifestyle, let how you live be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. What he was saying this, every part of your being ought to represent Jesus Christ. Everything that you say, everything that you live, every part of your life ought to be preaching Jesus Christ. Your conversation, your lifestyle, allow your speech, your actions, your decisions to cause others to come to the conclusion that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed you. Everything about you ought to bring others to a conclusion that you've been saved, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has, has changed you. You know, I hear a lot, and, and I, I think we ought to be cautious. I think we ought to give the gospel out to every single person we come to. But we need to realize this, that a person, uh, I, an old preacher, Sammy Allen, uh, he was telling a couple of men this last week, I'll never forget this, old preacher, he'd, he'd had this crooked finger, and he'd say this, no conversion or no conviction, no conversion. He'd say that over and over, no, no conviction, 
no conversion. He'd say a person, the Holy Spirit of God, has to come in and convict that person. And and that person needs to see that they're a sinner. That person needs to see that their sinful state, because of their sinful state, they can't enter the presence of God. That person must then confess and believe that what Jesus Christ had done on the cross, he shed his blood, he, he became sin for us, he rose again from the dead. And a person must see that in order to be saved and believe that. Paul here is speaking and talking to those that have been saved. This was not just a religious experience. This was not just a, 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 a prayer with no meaning that, there was, that was said. This is, he's speaking to people and he's saying this in verse number 27, that how you live, the lifestyle you live, what you say, where you go, your actions, everything about you, it ought to show that you have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lifestyle reveals who we are. I want you to see this as well in the same verse, number two. The Bible says this, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And then it goes on to say this, and whether I come and see you or else be absent. He says this, whether I'm there or not, I want to hear the same thing. I don't want you to be one way when I'm there. I want you, whether I'm there or not, be the same. I say that to my kids. Don't just behave when you're in front of us. I want you to behave when you're not, we're not around. I want to hear that when you go out without us, I want to hear what we hear back is that you behave, that you, you're obedient. Wherever my kids go, mostly the older ones, I'll, I'll say to them something like this, don't forget you're a Christian. Behave, act like one. Whether I'm in front of you or not, I want you to behave and act like a Christian. Paul's saying the same thing. He says whether I'm there or whether I'm not, I want to hear the same thing, and that's this, you're Christ-like. You're doing what God has called you to do. He goes on to say this, that I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind. I want you to see that word stand fast. And I want you to write this down, number two. What we are anchored in determines our behavior. What we are anchored in determines our behavior. He says to the Philippian church, as, P, as, as, as Timothy is sitting there beside him, as Paul's writing this epistle to the church at Philippi, and he says this, I want you to stand fast. Or in other words, I want you to be anchored in something. And what you're anchored in is going to show your behavior. You see, what happens a lot of times when Christians get upset, we behave in the flesh, and we use that as an excuse like it's okay to behave in the flesh because I was upset. Have you ever apologized because you were upset when you said something you really didn't mean it? Come on, men. Have you? I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I was just upset. No, you did mean it. That's why you said it. The problem is you're not, you weren't anchored. You weren't standing steadfast in, in one spirit, in one mind, striving together. So what happens is this. When we get off course, when we get upset or things don't go our way, we behave in such a way. And we, then we as, we as Christians, some reason, we think that it's okay if we behave that way because we have an excuse why we behave that way. I want you to flip over a page with me into Philippians chapter number two and verse number five. The Bible says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, we're supposed to think like Christ. 
We're supposed to have one, one, one uh, spirit and one mind. Whose mind is that? Well, as everyone thinks like me, then we're going to be okay. No, it's not that. In order to have unity in the church, it isn't, well, if everyone thinks like the pastor, then everything can be okay in the church and there's unity. That's not right. You know why? Because tomorrow I'll change my mind. You ever done that? You wanted it this way today and only tomorrow you find out you wanted it a different way? I know what we'll do is whatever the, whatever the deacons agree on, then, then we'll all just be in that mind and we can have unity in the church. It doesn't work that way. Well, everyone that's older, as long as they agree on something, then we'll have one mind and, and we'll, no, that's not the one mind that he's talking about. The one mind he's talking about is let this, let this mind be in you, which is also in who? Christ Jesus. That one spirit and that one mind is us having the mind of Christ. Not thinking with our carnal mind, not thinking with our human reasoning, not thinking what we think is always right and always best, but what our mind ought to be is established on the word of God. Our mind ought to be one mind with Christ. Whatever Christ says is what we ought to believe. Whatever he desires is what we ought to believe. Here we find Paul, he is coming to the place, he says, I want you to stand fast, or I want you to be anchored. I want you to be anchored. I saw this quote, and I have no idea who wrote this, but I thought this was an incredible quote. It says this, it takes a courageous church, it takes a courageous church to resist infighting and to maintain a common purpose to serve Christ. Oh man, that's a great quote. It takes a courageous church to resist infighting and maintain a common purpose to serve Christ. Because everyone has an opinion, everyone has a thought, and the reality is this, all of us could have an opinion on something and it not necessarily be wrong, but if our opinion isn't based on the word of God, if our opinion isn't the mind of Christ, that's what makes us wrong. Paul is saying we need to be anchored anchored, being anchored determines our behavior. If I'm anchored in the word of God, if I'm anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I'm anchored in the mind of Christ, then I can then, my behavior's right when suffering comes. You know what Paul is saying here? Look, at, look with me in verse number 29. The Bible says this, but the last part of that, but also to suffer for his sake. Every one of us are going to go through suffering. Every family is going to. You can't live as a Christian serving the Lord and think that everything is always going to go right or go the way you think is right. There's always going to be suffering. God uses suffering to strengthen the church. God uses suffering to strengthen your home. And when we're anchored in the right mind, when we're anchored in the word of God, when that comes, we make right decisions. I want you to see with me number three. The Bible says in verse number 28. I studied this verse. As a matter of fact, I even asked some different people, tell me what you think this verse means. The Bible says, and in, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. 
and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. No matter what happens in our life, the adversary should not bring fear in a Christian's life. Paul was being buffeted. Paul was being placed in prison. He's in bonds. He's, he's, he's being beaten. He's being stoned. He's, he's, he's causing uh, pain in his body. Satan is there, is an adversary. And what Paul is saying is don't let anything the enemy does, don't let anything your adversary does bring fear to your life. Allow whatever it is to bring you into a relationship with Christ not fear. Have you ever been afraid of something that wasn't even real? Now, I'm not talking about the boogeyman under your bed. I don't mean that. Have you ever thought on something and you've come to a conclusion and you've got it all figured out, how it's all going to fail, how miserable it's going to be, how Satan is won? We might as well give up. Anything ever happened to you that way? The adversary, what he does is he puts fear inside of your heart and mind. Anything he can do to put fear. See, if he could get you to stop thinking about Christ and start thinking about fear, if he can stop, get you to stop thinking about the gospel and start looking at fear in your life, if he can get you to stop preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to be afraid of what life is coming, what, what's happening in your life, you say, you get bad news and we start living in fear. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? How are we going to live? How are we going to pay our bills? How are we going to get through this trial? And we start thinking the worst of everything. The adversary has won in your life. What Paul is showing the Christian is this. Live a fearless life as a Christian. You know what I believe that stops a lot of Christians? Fear. Fear. I think fear stops a lot of Christians from witnessing. What's that person going to say? Rejection. We, at times, before we even witness to somebody, we already have it figured out that they're not going to get saved, that they're going to reject you, that they're going to make fun of you and mock you, and so what do we do? We don't even witness. That's fear. Satan puts that fear in your life, and so that fear causes you not to be obedient. You say, how is that not being obedient? Because the Bible says that Jesus said to, to his disciples, to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. It is our responsibility to tell every single person about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But fear causes us not to. There's missionaries that are on the field this evening because of fear. Can I raise enough support? What happens when I get there? Will I stay on the field? What's going to happen to my family? All of this fear comes in and they don't do what God's called them to do. There's people in churches that aren't serving the Lord. Do you know, churches are one of those places it just seems like there's always a need. There's always something to do. There's always an opportunity to serve. Now, how could a church that has so many people always have a need? You know, we always need Sunday school teachers. You know why we don't have enough Sunday school teachers? I believe this, because some people are afraid. Satan's got you living a life of fear. 
I don't know if I could do a good job. I don't know if I could be faithful. And all of these things, these fears start coming into your life. And what happens is this. We aren't anchored in one mind. We're not anchored in, 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 in one spirit. We're not anchored in the word of God. What we are, we're anchored in fear. And fear keeps us from moving forward. I believe this, that Satan tries to intimidate the church. He tries to intimidate the church through fear. You can't do this. Listen, the church, the church strength, it comes from the Lord. Its ability comes from the Lord. Its resources come from the Lord. There should be nothing that a church fears. A church ought to be going a, a thousand miles an hour as fast as it can to reach his community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a commission from God to do it. We have the strength of God to do it. We've got the resources of God to do it. Why don't we do it? Because of fear. Because of fear. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of being misunderstood. And fear causes us to take a step back. And Paul says here in this verse, he says, in, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them evident token of perdition. Perdition is this, eternal, eternal damnation. You know what? The fact that they want to stop God shows what their destiny is going to be. Listen, Satan loses. He's already lost. Our adversary that puts fear in our life, he's already lost. There's nothing he can do to change the word of God. His fate is sealed. Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire and he is going to burn forever and ever and ever and every, every fallen angel that was tossed out of heaven is going to be placed in that lake of fire as well. Satan has lost and we have won. Then we ought not live in fear. We ought to live like we've won in Christ. A church ought to go forward like it's on the winning side. A church ought to live and, 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 and operate in a place of faith, not a place of fear, knowing this, that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. A church's resources are already there. A church's power is already there. A church's ability is already there because it ought to be anchored in the word of God, not anchored in fear. But fear allows us or causes us not to have one spirit in one mind. You can't strive together if there's a spirit of fear. And sometimes God will want a church to do something and, and there'll be a, a, a segment of people that out of fear will resist. I don't know if we ought to do that. Paul here is telling the believer that you ought to be anchored because what you're anchored in determines your behavior. And then he shows us this in verse number 28, to live fearlessly. Nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition or eternal damnation, but to you of salvation. Suffering comes. I'm saved. Satan cannot do anything to take my salvation can't. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 20, 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know what you get with salvation? Heaven. Amen. Eternal life. Amen. A mansion in heaven. Isn't that great? 
I mean, that's what we tell people. Don't you want to be saved? You get heaven. You get a mansion. And you get suffering. You know what comes with salvation? Suffering. You don't hear that a whole lot on the, the televangelist that says, you know, send me $15 and I'll give you a portion of my sweaty rag that I'll send to you. You don't hear that from the prosperity gospel. Get saved and everything's going to be right in your life. Just claim it. Name it and claim it. Everything's going to be okay. He forgot to read this verse. I'm preaching the whole counsel of the Bible. You know what the Bible says here? Not only believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Listen, suffering comes to those that believe on Christ. Paul wasn't suffering because of his sin. Paul wasn't suffering because of bad decisions he made. Paul was suffering because he was preaching Jesus Christ. Live fearlessly. Write these three things down. I'll be done this evening. Number one is this. Suffering should take our eyes off of earthly conflict. Suffering in the life of a Christian ought to take eyes off early earthly conflict or earthly uh, conflict in comforts. The conflict isn't about earthly things. The conflict is about heavenly things. We ought not seek the comforts of this world. We ought to seek to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. I love that song that we sang at the invitation this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Listen, when Jesus is in view, you don't have time for the things of this world. In suffering, it should take our eyes off the things of this earth and it should put our eyes on Jesus Christ. Number two, write this down. We ought to live fearlessly knowing this, that suffering, it weeds out superficial Christians. It weeds out superficial Christians. There are Christians that just want to be a part of good. And I don't mean good and evil. I just mean fun. Man, when everything's good, I'm on board. Listen, suffering, it weeds out superficial Christians. And number three, suffering strengthens the faith of those that endure. Suffering strengthens the faith of those that endure. Listen, every single Christian in this room tonight, you ought to be growing in your faith. You ought to be doing more as a Christian that requires faith than you've ever done before. I want to be out there so far in this thing of faith that if God took his hands off me, I'd drown. I mean, I want to be so deep knowing that God's going to supply that if he ever chose not to, there's nothing I could do to survive. I think that's the way a church ought to be. We ought not be playing it safe. I don't think that we ought to just be playing it safe when it comes to reaching people. I think that we ought to have the same focus here that Paul has. Live a fearless life attempting to make the gospel of Jesus Christ the center focus of what we believe in what we do and how we live and how we behave and how we think. And our mind ought to be centered around Jesus Christ so that as a church we're going forth and we're going to a place that requires such a level of faith that if God ever took his hand upon this off this place we'd die we'd die is that the level of faith that you're living is that the level of faith we as a church 
are living. You see, if the church was living that way, then every single person would be making decisions with one mind, one spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ would be what it's all about. Not what I want, not what you want, but what does he want? Not what do I think, what do you think, what does he think? Jesus, his mind, is what we ought to be stayed upon. And when our mind is stayed upon Christ and we have one mind in one faith, in one God, in one spirit, we then can strive together. And when we strive together, the gospel goes out. I think we can do better, don't you? I read this in the 1950s there were 100,000 missionaries in the world in the 1950s. Today, today there's less than 30,000. Now, I'm not talking about cults that are out there. I'm talking about Bible-believing. And those that are going out are having a hard time getting there. You think if there's 70,000 less missionaries it'd be quicker to get there. And with 70,000 less missionaries, it's still taking more time to get there than it ever has before. I believe it's because the church isn't striving together. More churches are closing now than ever before. All over this country, churches are closing their doors. You know why? Because they're not striving together for the gospel's sake. They got their mind off of something other than the gospel. And when a church gets its mind off of something other than the gospel and puts its resources or puts its mind or puts its energy in something else, God's not going to bless it. But God is looking Bless the church that is committed to striving together for the gospel's sake. You know what keeps all of us together? The gospel. None of us have anything in common outside of that. Our paths would never cross. And if they did, we wouldn't want to be around each other. What we have in common ought to be one mind, one spirit, and it'll cause us to strive together so the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes what we do and how we live. Our lifestyle reveals who we are. What we're anchored in determines our behavior. And Paul says, live fearless. Nothing terrified by your adversary. Don't live in fear. Live by faith. 